my goal in this life is for Africans to become co-creators in uh, prosperity and entrepreneurship. And, um, you know, we need to have 2.5 billion Africans being prosperous by 2050. Hello and welcome back to the Hannah Franklin podcast. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Magat Wade. Magat is an entrepreneur. She's an author. And during her childhood, she was raised in Senegal and in Germany. And in today's episode, I got to ask her lots of questions about what it was like to grow up in Senegal, what the schools in Senegal are like, what the education tradition is like, how the education approach changed during the colonial era in Senegal. And I got to talk to her about her experience building a school in Senegal, which is a project that she's currently working on and also building a business in Senegal and why entrepreneurship and teaching kids entrepreneurship is such a core part of her thesis around how to bring prosperity to Africa, which is central to all of the work that Magat does. While you're listening to today's episode, if you would like to follow along and take a look at her school, it's called Tiosan Academy. You can find all of the information about it at tiossanacademy.org. Also, just as a heads up, we had some technical difficulties while recording this episode, but we didn't want to delay the conversation. So you'll hear a little bit of a decrease in audio quality from most episodes on the part of my microphone. But hopefully the quality of the conversation that we had makes up for any lacking in audio quality. I learned so much in this conversation and I really hope that you enjoy listening. Magat, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Hannah. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm so excited to be doing this. I'm also very happy that we made this work after having a bunch of technical difficulties getting this set up. I'm very happy that we finally got everything working, mostly as it's supposed to be, because I've been really, really looking forward to this conversation for multiple reasons. One, I've just always been such a fan of your work. I love everything you. that you do. And I'm excited to go down many rabbit holes with you today. But I'm particularly excited to have you here having this conversation because so many of the conversations that I've had about education on the podcast so far have been very United States centric. We've been talking about the education system in America we're in places very similar to America, like Canada or Western Europe. And there's so much more to the conversation than that. And there's so much more to be added beyond that, both in terms of context and perspective, but also in terms of learning from how people in other places do things and drawing from the knowledge on a planetary level about what we have learned across cultures and across time about raising kids. And so I'm so excited to talk to you about the work that you're doing in Africa with education specifically. I'm sure we'll get into all of it as we go, but especially with education and your own reflections growing up in Africa and what it was like to be educated there and the work that you're doing now building a school. Um, and I think that last part is probably the place that makes the most sense to start to paint context for the conversation that we're about to have 
can you, you're, you're running a school in Senegal. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Right, right. And um, thanks, Hannah. I think it's very important that um, as we think about this topic of education to really try to also put it in the, into the global context of things. So I'm glad you're giving us this opportunity. So basically, um, when we say, when I say we have a school in, in Africa, um, we are base, based in West Africa, in Senegal, that's my home country. And uh, so Senegal is a Francophone African nation, as we have many of them. So most of Africa is divided along Francophone Africa and, um, you know, Anglophone Africa. And then we have a couple Lusophone uh, nations, which basically speak uh, Portuguese because they used to be, uh, you know, Portuguese colo uh, colonies. So in any case, so I belong to, so us, obviously, we're part of West Africa and uh I am an entrepreneur, so I'm building my third company, and uh, we basically it's a skincare company we manufacture in Senegal. And uh, one thing that was very important for me was to start an education program, because the reason why I even have a business in Senegal is my my whole thing in life is about prosperity building. I want for Africans to become prosperous in our lifetime. My stated goal is 2.5 billion. Uh, prosperous Africans by 2050, right? And for that to happen, it's we're going to have to rely on entrepreneurial value creation, aka this whole thing that others might call free market uh, capitalism, or you know, um, entrepreneurial capitalism. And if you say entrepreneurial or anything entrepreneurial, you have to be serious about really uh, fostering people, little and big. You know, so meaning kids and adults, but because adults were kids once upon a time, and the sooner you start this process, the better it will be. Uh, it's very important that everybody is monomaniacal on this concept of entrepreneurship, which means that um, it, it doesn't matter where you're operating from, uh, whether you're operating from a standpoint of um, being part of a government or in the private sector or some type of nonprofits, education, you name it. I think it's very important to focus focus our efforts on this on fostering um, an entrepreneurial mindset. And I'm just not simply seeing it back home. I I'm not, especially within that um, what I would call the classic education. So what you have to understand is um, so Senegal being a colony of France, we used to be colonized by France. Um, what we have inherited from that era is basically an education that's very much like the French education, very top down. But in our case, you also have an added extra flavor of colonialism. So all of our reference points are going to be reference points from France. Everything that we learn, you know, it's like it's we don't learn so much about our heroes, our own national heroes or continental heroes. It's mostly about heroes from another place. I mean, again, uh, a hero is a hero. It's it's fine that uh, we learn about other heroes, but it's also a good thing to learn about your own heroes as well. So um, so what I mean by so as you probably would agree top-down education by now, I would imagine that all of your audience um, understands why that's not a good idea, you know? And if on top of that, you have a colonial flavor, flavor on it, you can understand double why it's not a good idea. And But that's what we have very much. And um, the worst thing is that even when you look at France right now, the education system in, in France is very much in need of a profound reform. Just like education 
almost all around the world as we know it, is in need of profound reforms. Because at some point, more or less around the world, we have adopted these very top-down type of educations. I think, um, and we can talk about it at some point, but me, I was raised also in Germany. So I went to school in Germany, which was a little bit different. And I have to tell you, I have a much better experience of having been in school in, Ge in Germany than I have having been in school in France. But not to confuse people right now as to where we are, so in Senegal, this is what you have. You have uh, so the French already are realizing that they have a really, really their education system is in is in is in need of deep reform. They're struggling with it, but at least they're wrestling with it. Where us, we are really not questioning much, and when we do, we still kind of tend to copy what the French are doing. But bottom line is, what does it though mean for me? So right now in Senegal, what you have is an education system modeled after the French one, like I said, with a colonial flavor on top of it. But the problem you have in Senegal is you have um, a good 80% of the population lives in poverty or, you know, the middle class is super small. Then the bottom of a pyramid made of more, mostly, you know, poor people is pretty much what you have. And then you have a tiny little elite at the top. So the school system, as we know it, it seems to work best for the elite because they, why? Because when you get to school, the official language is French. In Senegal, the official language is French. But the problem is, for most people, they don't understand French. So, you see, we're supposed to speak this French, but if you go right now to the village where we are, and by the way, we set ourselves up in a village because I really wanted to contribute to um, helping keep people in their communities. I am very much against people having to leave their homes, having to leave their communities in order to go somewhere else in search for a job and for a better life. If people do that out of taste, you know, because maybe there's something really better in the process, why not? But um, this, this exodus from the rural areas to the cities and um, done by people who are doing it in very unprepared ways, it's just a big no-no. So what's happening a lot is um, people are leaving the countryside trying to go to the city, to the city, uh, capital city of Senegal, which is Dakar, where a quarter of a population lives. So you can imagine how cramped the whole place is. So it means people leave their kids behind in the village. So in the village, you mostly have kids and um, older people left there. So in our case, well, I'm thinking the only way we can help people stay home and raise their children in the villages, stay where they are, is if you do, you provide two things. Because for a community to build, it builds around two anchors, jobs and school. We are providing the jobs with our manufacturing facility, producing skincare products sold here in the US. But then what you have is, I'm not going to sit here and say we don't have schools. I'm not going to say that. We do have schools, including in this village where we're operating. But truth be told, the quality of the public schools is terrible, really terrible. Because what you have, especially for these public schools in these poor areas, is that the kids who are going to these schools, um, they... Imagine, Hannah, you are now five or six years old. And in France, that's when, in France, because in France it's the same, in Senegal, that's when school becomes obligatory. It becomes man mandatory for you to get to school, right? And you can't be homeschooled. Homeschool does not count. So that's the age at which, as a little girl, in your case, you would have to go to school. Now, imagine your whole life. You've, you're now six years old. You're going to have to go to school in September. But your whole life, You've spoken Wolof for the most part. Wolof is the main indigenous language of Senegal. We have many other languages, but that one is the most spoken among, 
among, it doesn't matter which ethnic background you are, usually, you speak that language. So as a little girl, that's all you know, that's all you've heard, that's all you understand, because that's all your parents know and speak. Now, all of a sudden, from one day to another, you show up in this classroom where now everything will be taught to you. Now they speak to you in French. So you go from understanding, you know what it means when I say, um, in your case, you're, you're, it's almost like you only speak uh, um, English. And all of a sudden you come to my to the school and they tell you official language is Wolof. So Hannah is six years old. She knows when I tell her, Anna, please bring me this glass of water. She knows what it means. And she'll go bring it to me. And I can then, you know, go on to do her education with, you know, with that language. But now Hannah comes and from, instead of hearing, please bring me this glass of water, she's hearing, you're looking at me like, huh? But now you're going to have to learn that two plus two equals four in that language you don't understand. Um, and it goes on for everything like that. So we miss, we're losing the kids left and right, left and right. We'll never know what was in the minds of these kids simply because we had a language problem. And we've never really thought about fixing this problem, right? Of uh, how are we, now I understand, we can't just have all the education be done in the local language simply because that's what people understand. Because if that's all they, if that's all we do, at some point, the minute they go and have to talk to somebody who doesn't speak the language, it's game over. You can't, they can't function. And especially with languages that are spoken by only a few million people in the world, which is like Wolof, you're not going to go far with that. So at some point, we're going to have to we're going to have to use a language that um, the rest of the world can understand, whether it's uh, French, Spanish, you know, English or whatever, or Mandarin Chinese, uh, Mandarin Cantonese, whatever it is. So in this case, that's what we have. You have these people who belong to the to the modest, you know, social uh, social classes who French for them, yeah, it's the official language, but they don't get, they don't understand it. Their parents don't speak it. And all of a sudden, from one day to another, literally, they're thrown into a whole world uh, where they're supposed to now come and become educated, yet they're being spoken in a language that they absolutely have no idea what it is. And year after year after year, the, you know, the, they're, they just lag and lag and lag and lag more and more. The, 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 the gap just builds and builds and builds more. And eventually that's how at age 9, 10, kids drop out of school. And if they don't drop out of school by that time, they drop out of school by 12, 15. Uh, very few make it to um, what we call the end of high school with a GED. And even those who make it, a lot of it is inflated because now what you have is also with a demographic dividend, you have so many kids coming into the system, the, the amount of kids being born is faster than the, the how much infrastructure can be built to welcome them all. And so what they're doing is they just keep on pushing all the kids through the system, whether or not they are at, at the level and just keep pushing them, keep pushing them. Don't even, um, you know, say you're going to have to redo this class or whatever, just keep going, keep going. So eventually at the end, you have all of these so-called diplomas that are very, um, you know, inflated and not worth much. This is how you have somebody who is in, at the university now, and when they speak in French, which is supposedly the language that they're supposed to use, they can't line up two proper sentences in French. So it's, it's just the disaster we have. So in our case, but now if you have a child of uh, somebody more from the elite, it's not too much of a problem for you because chances are your parents, may, they understand French as well. They speak also a local language and all of that. And of course, they can help you both. And you probably have been speaking French at home as well. So you don't really have that issue. But the reality is that for most 
of the children, especially those of interest to me, because I'm all about allowing people, giving people this opportunity to climb the social ladder, right? The, that social ladder. And again, if we're going to get to 2.5 prosperous Africans by two by 2050, this has to be solved. And so this has been the dilemma we have been working on. That's why I needed to create a school to kind of, you know, um, see if we can offer something better to these children. And I have to say, most private schools in um, in Senegal cater mostly, obviously, to maybe to the elite, and the ones that are at um, the ones that are catering also to the bottom of a of a pyramid because we have some. It really is not going much. It's it's not doing much more either. I mean, kids are barely just being literate um, and fluent, lit, having flu, um, literal fluency, but really not much more. The bottom line is what we have right now going on is an entire generation, it's been going on for a while, but basically now with uh, the coming of, um, you know, more and more technology, AI being chief of them, and I'm not one of those AI doomers, for sure not. For me, I look at AI as something that's going to be really helpful to society. Um, I don't have all the doom and gloom, but, uh, you know, I know that it's very popular in Silicon Valley circles these days. Um, But regardless, the point is, you do have an entire class of people who will never be able to integrate the 21st century uh, if something does not change. So what we have set out to do is to create a school where we kind of work out the system that is going to be required in order to take children in this situation from where they are today to where they need to be, meaning people who can really face off the 21st century, creating lifelong learners um, despite all the challenges. And so the school was created for that. And uh, right now we're at the point where we can scale it up because we think we have worked with the kinks. So what happened is we had to bring in the kids. And so when they're, but we're taking, at first I started with children who were eight, nine years old, because I thought, silly me, that's why when you're trying to do something, it's always good to get into practice as quickly as possible, because there's always something that you're missing when you sit in the, in the side of fury. So here I was thinking, okay, we're going to get them as young as we can so that we can still retry, you know, help them unlearn and relearn, but not so young that they haven't had their basics in French. So I really thought that eight, nine years old would have basics in French, and then we could use that language as a uh, bridge to do all the other things we need to do with them. Little did I know that nine, ten, they don't read. They don't know how to read. The French is really poor, almost no vocabulary, grammar, forget about it. So basically, there is the French is non-existent and all the skills that go with it, non-existent. And so we were just like, wait, what? So all of a sudden, we found ourselves having to do with kids that are 8, 9, 10 years old. We had to almost bring them back to what they should have been doing when they were 3, 4, 5, 6 years old. You see how, and then all of a sudden, I found myself just having to really go back with these kids trying to take them back to where things should have began and keep going with them. But I have to say, those children have been troopers and you see them just going fast, fast, fast and climbing back and climbing back. And really, I mean, they're just so, so, they're, they're just, I just have so much love and respect for them. It's not even a joke. So basically making up for years, you know, of backlog, it's unbelievable. But at some point I told myself, I said, listen, my God, at the end of the day, time, resources, everything is limited. When are you, can you continue doing this? Continue, although it's very needed, 
continue taking kids who are in the public in the public system, but technically not going anywhere, and then bring them into this program, spend all of this energy and time to try to bring them up to speed. While you're doing that, you have the kids who are three years old getting started on the wrong foot. And then a few years from now, they're the ones you're going to have to go back and try to rescue. Can you keep doing that? So eventually we said, stop, stop. The older kids, because I call them the older kids, you know, those eight, nine, 10 that we started with, we call them the older kids. So that cohort we had, we kept them because, you know, you become attached to kids and they become attached to you as well. And truly they're doing well and there is a future for them. So we kept them, they're our cohort and we grandfathered them in. But then I said, from now on, although all the effort's going to be spent on the little guys. So what we did is we went down to the little guys and um, basically build like a, building a program, which is the children's house, Montessori style children's house. So three to seven. And so really getting, so we get the little guys, some of them are even two and a half, uh, but very precautious for some of them, and then bring them into the program and just get started there. And then from there, you get it all right. What we're allowed to do at that point is also be able to even work on their nutritions. Um, Because one of the things we have found, for example, is that a lot of these kids, due to poverty, they don't really get to eat um, um, the type of uh, food that really would help with their, you know, body, brain development, all of that stuff. It's not that people are stupid, you know. You, Hannah, you see in the morning, if you don't eat, there is at some point where everything just shuts down. It's not It's not because of the, of the intrinsic quality of what's in your brain. It's like, you know, everything needs to be fed, right? Everything needs to be fed and given, given energy and resources. So when kids don't have access, especially to protein, and we all know how important protein is to the brain, to brain function, um, it becomes a big problem. So even those things we had to kind of solve, and because protein is mo- is very expensive, everywhere protein is usually expensive, and so that's the first thing that gets sacrificed sacrificed in their um, nutrition. And so even that we had to supplement. We basically were providing kids with eggs. Um, we're adding stuff like carrots, like vegetables. You know, trying to come up with very uh, nutritious meals and balanced meals so that, you know, their bodies and their minds are sustained in a proper way so that in return, they can really focus on their work. So these are all the reasons why I did this, because I really wanted to give these children a chance for a true education, the one that I know will prepare them for the 21st century. I know you've had uh, Michael Strong, full disclosure, my husband, on your show, and he's an amazing, I think for me, he's one of the best, you know, educators out there, uh, period. And um, he has this school called um, the uh, Socratic Experience. And what they're doing is a lot of it is based on the Socratic method. He's got his own unique sauce, obviously. And so these children are also benefiting from some of those concepts from a very early age. So the goal here is to, again, build lifelong learners and um, really looking at the specific constraints that we have operating in a place like we are in the in a village uh, with most with a lot of poor people, uh, kids who might not kids who don't don't even know, have this concept of having their own bed, right? For the most part, sometimes in some of these families, what the child is living in is um, for some of the poorest. What happens is you know when uh, at home it's not so much that they have a bed. So what happens at night when everybody goes to bed? Then they bring in some little um, you know mattresses, but it's not really a mattress. It's more like a uh, a thicker than it's, it's a thicker than normal, maybe, how do you call it, a carpet, and then put a piece of sheet on it, and then the kids, they line up, 
a few kids and then they sleep. In the morning, get all of that off, it turns back into a living room. So you're dealing sometimes with kids who come from backgrounds like that. So you can imagine that, you know, time for quiet um, households where, because you have multiple people living in the same home, multi-generational, TV is blasting all the time. So you don't really have this chance for the kids to really be, um, have a proper environment that allows them for thinking even straight. So the goal with the school is to keep them with us for as long as we can during the day. The next phase, uh, especially as we scale, the next phase is going to be to keep them with us also during lunchtime and even maybe provide them with a little snack before they go home in the evening. But the goal for me is for them to only spend uh, sleeping hours at home, meaning like nighttime. And then as soon as they're awake, we bring them over. We have these whole routines of, you know, brushing teeth, all of that. And a lot of things we have to provide for them because the families, not that they don't believe in it, oftentimes don't have a means. This whole thing started with the children of our workers. So the children of our workers usually are in better shape because their parents have a job. That's why, because they're working with us. But eventually we opened it up to more kids in the, in the community that are not necessarily um, parents uh, who work with us. So so that's kind of what's going on. Um, maybe I'll pause there for a second because I there are so many things I, I want to say and I'm sure I have to say, but uh, I don't want it to sound like a monologue. Um, and also I'm not sure some things make sense that make sense or you have questions because I, I, I realize I'm talking about very different backgrounds from maybe what most of your audience um, is used to. Well, that's part of why I wanted to have this conversation because I think that there are there are multiple sides of this that are really interesting and really important to talk about. And one is the differing starting points, the, the difference in backgrounds between children in different places, but also, you know, as you start thinking through how to solve problems in different places and, and for children with different backgrounds, it shines a light on different aspects of childhood development and the learning process that you maybe never would have thought of if you're only looking at kids from one type of background where certain things are being taken care of. And so you just don't think of those as being developmentally necessary or, you know, they already are, have an aptitude to learn certain things because their environment is just making it feel not only like a necessity, but also very interesting. So you never have to consciously think about making sure that children are learning this. And so I think that's part of why these types of conversations are so important is because it allows you to see a larger, like more, more of the colors on the spectrum of light that you maybe are seeing when you're just like looking through one prism at like one specific situation or one specific type of environment. Um, and there are a couple of things, there are a couple of parallels that I want to draw between what you just said and some of the conversations that have already happened on the podcast. Because I think there's a couple of things here that are really interesting. And then I have more specific questions about how you're doing what you're doing. But when you're talking about this top-down structure, that there's almost like this two-tiered top-down structure, which is uh, an extension of what many people who are frustrated with uh, the education system in North America are very familiar with, but it's sort of a one-tiered top-down. Like we just have the one bureaucracy and it's telling everyone what to do and it's not an efficient system and that's very frustrating for many people. But you're talking about two layers of this which just accentuate, you get like two different sets of breaking points for this top-down structure to not function properly or to like not interface correctly. Like it's, it's, it already doesn't fit on top of the culture to begin with. And then you have the second layer of, and the system is not serving the children. And what you're talking about with, you know, kids 
being ushered through the system, even when they're not actually learning all of the things, is something that also happens in American schools, as I know you're very aware of kids, you know, you get 70% on a test and technically it's a passing grade and you can you can get that all year and move on to the next thing. And you really only understood 70% of the material. And then next year, you're going to understand even less because everything is iterative. So it's building on itself. So if you didn't learn everything that you needed to in fractions, you're going to have a really hard time in pre-algebra, but technically you passed and you completed the class. Mm -hmm. And so you have this incrementally building knowledge set that is just full of holes and eventually it all collapses because a foundation full of holes, a porous foundation cannot sustain the weight that is placed upon it. And so what is happening in Senegal that you're describing, it feels to me like it's an even deeper accentuation of something that is true in education as a whole, but because of the even more rickety scaffolding that it's all placed upon, these problems that are very universal become far more accentuated and far more problematic. And I don't want to oversimplify, oversimplify this. So correct me if you think that this is not a fair assessment, but as you're talking about this, this is all that's coming up for me is like, wow, this is, this is like the problems elsewhere, but it sounds even, it's even worse and it's even more damaging for the potential that these children have but I want to, I'm, I'm curious both, I'm actually really curious if this is, if this is something that you, you can speak to about maybe how you see that both, not just the, the problems of the systems, but also the mechanics of it. Like, is the curriculum that kids are being put through, like, is it fairly similar to what people in America would be accustomed to? Like, if someone's listening to this and they're mostly familiar with just sort of like the academic progression that kids are put through in the States, like... Is it a fairly similar progression that kids are supposed to go through or yeah. is it, are there, are there fundamental differences? And then also in your school, are you like, what, what does the curriculum look like? Like, how are you thinking about the foundations? Not just the basic things of like making sure kids are able to establish a habit of brushing their teeth because they have access to toothbrushes in your school. But also as you're thinking about, you know, you, you want to create a school where kids can graduate and become economic actors in an entrepreneurial sense. And they can take this world that they've been given. And instead of being shackled by the fact that they don't even have the skills to speak the language to navigate this, they can have the agency to say, I want to live this type of life. And I understand that I have the skills to go do that, which is the most noble goal one could possibly have. But right. I'm very curious about like how you think philosophically about the right. education that you're stewarding your students through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, our the students are um, the the program in Senegal is more or less modeled after the program in France. Although, like I said, the French are doing reforms, and uh, just actually two days ago, the Minister of Education in France um, basically was talking about some of the new changes we're going to have, especially when it comes to math and French, you know, allowing for different tiers, like within the same classroom, understanding that not all kids are at the same level. And they were going to have, you know, like um, group one, two, and uh, three, unless they, yeah, I think it was one, two, three, not ABC, but one, two, three, uh, but only in math and English, I'm sorry, math and French, they were going to do that because they're, they're getting also that the kids are, but the levels are going way down, right? And so, 
there it's happening. Us, we're not, none of this is happening yet. Uh, people are questioning the GED. Should we have it, not have it anymore? So they're trying to do, they're rethinking all types of reforms. But us, we're stuck in what the old French system used to be, which in, a, in general is more or less, you know, close to what the American, you know, curriculum is. Here and there, you're going to have maybe, maybe in math, you do fractions at this level, not at that level. So we might have some of those disparities. But as a, in general, by the time they get to GED, they're pretty much all at the same level, whether you're talking about a kid in France or a kid in um in the US on the curic- curriculum wise, right? Now us, um, what have we, what are we actually doing to kind of address all of this? If you look at uh, with the little kids, basically the, the, the children, children's house level, then um, we are working primarily, we basically designing a Montessori style model that's more or less unique to, um, you know, the Senegalese context in this case, like all the material is kind of rethought to basically fit what the kids are used to, right? So some stuff is going to work. Some of the typical Montessori material is going to work, like especially in math and such, but everywhere we have an opportunity to, to contextualize the material, we do it, right? So whether we're the, the spices, like right now, for example, there's a lot of work that went into even the breakfast, you know, and um, how the breakfast would be prepared, what would be what it would entail and all that. So we'll always use things that are contextualized uh, when we're going to talk about music, when we're going to talk about songs, all of that stuff, we contextualize a lot. But beyond that, what we had to do in our situation was to really... Um, understand how do you go from the kids only understanding this wall of language, yet you know that at some point they're going to have to do to to move over to the French. And in my case, I want them as quickly as possible to also get to the English, because we all know the, the if you want to belong to the global community, English is a big. <laughs> it's a big. You have to have English. And we all know that kids also have an amazing ability to learn languages. Myself, I was trilingual at age seven, right? Um, it's just for for kids, it's super easy. So there is something there that's to be taken. So me, um, what we're doing is to try and uh, work with those three languages, starting with the Wolof that they have. So at first, everything is taught in uh, Wolof so that the kids really get it. You know, like when they talk in Montessori about the concept of normalizing the classroom. So in order to get to that level, we primarily use French um, Wolof first. And then eventually you get to a point where then they're almost like uh, reading in uh, in um, Wolof, reading and writing in Wolof while you only speak to them in, in French. So there is a way for us to to graduate this way, and then you continue on with uh, with the English at a later time, a later age. So those are the things that we're doing. And then um, in our situation, we also like to add, um, you know, the little Montessori. Uh, um, for those of them who are older enough, it's great to do what Michael has been doing with some of his younger students. I don't know if you've seen some of his... Uh, you know, videos with people like Alana or, you know, when she was four years old, he started really having these conversations with her. And, you know, this, by the way, I want to go back to because I was telling you that um, this education system as it is, it was never this way before. This is something that actually came with um, the white settlers. This is something that came, this is like an, um, 
a legacy left behind by the by the from the colonial era, right? And so when you look back at the, at the time, that always interests me when it comes to the story of Africa, because for so many people, myself included, for the longest time, the story of Africa and Black African people seems to start with slavery, then moves on to colonialism to present day, where I'm like, wait a second, though, there were Africans on that plate on that continent before before the white man ever set foot on the continent, who were we? What were we doing? You know, we had kids, we had, you know, thriving economies. What were we doing? Even that's also the, the topic of the book. You know, um, we were free marketeers, free enterprise people. This whole thing of Africans are socialists is complete bogus, uh, misunderstood and conflated with this, conf co this concept of Ubuntu. I am because we are. So anyway, when the education system is the same thing, it turns out that um, the traditional a way of uh, educating our kids before all the influences from the outside world were very much, you know, the way um, we're very much along the philosophies of someone like Mary Montessori had many, obviously, many, many years afterwards. So our people were practicing something very similar, minus the material, of course. But where the similarity was, was in very much the respect for the child, respect for the, you know, the, 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 the natural progress of a child, and also giving also respect to the human being that the child is. And so I, pre I prepared here a, um, a section here that I wanted to share with you, um, you know, showing that questions were asked gently and naturally without any effort. So this is from a book that I think people should really read. It's, um, it's, um, called Facing Mount Kenya, and it was written by Jomo Kenyatta, who was, the first, um, free, who was the first president of Free Kenya. So he was one of the African liberators. He fought for the liberation. And the good thing about him is he was an anthropologist. So Jomo Kenyatta, when he started writing about Africans, was actually one of the rare African anthropologists writing about Africa. Because even to this day, oftentimes, anthropolo anthropologists are not Africans who are writing about Africa. And there's a lot of things they don't get right because they only see, they only understand what they see. They don't necessarily understand what's underneath or even what's there. Um, so anyway, so I will read you this part, this um, section here that's on, uh, if you got the PDF, it's around page 100, 101, section on system of education. The mother notices that he, he the child, does not like certain songs. Um, she, the mother, at once introduces others with different phrases and melody embodying the same teaching. When the child is able to speak, he can answer many questions which are asked gently and naturally to test how much he has learned. Such questions as these might be asked, what is your name? Who is your father? What is his age group? What is the name of your grandfather um, and your great-grandfather? What is the name of your grandmother? What are their age groups? Why were they given such and such names for the age groups? This type of questions goes back for several generations and small children are able to answer freely without any effort or strain on their part. These questions are never asked seriously. They are always taken in the form of amusement or conversationally. In this way, the history and traditions of a child's family, maternal and paternal, become a stimulating influence in his life and form a fitting background to his environment. After passing the stage of infancy, the education of a child takes a different shape. The child is taught um, how to sit and walk properly to avoid having bow legs, for a straight figure is admired by, Giyuk, by Gikuyus. These are the 
the Kenyan tribe it belongs to, especially amongst the warriors. It is one of the qualities of handsomeness. And so they go on and so on and forth. But you see, this type of education has absolutely nothing to do with today. You compare it today to what is the education in Senegal, especially in, uh, in, the, um, in these poor, you know, situations, setups, it's like three, four kids lined up in a table this large and repeating mindlessly after a teacher who barely knows more than them, mindlessly the ABCs, um, history lessons laced with with colonial flavor on top of that. That's what you have today. And that's very different from what I just described to you. But what I described to you was the traditional way in most traditional African societies of um, raising children. Um, even me, Senegal, you would have people like Sheikh Hamadou Bamba, who is one of our you know, spiritual leaders. And it was known that he would spend all of his time, like as an older man, you, because they sit under the tree. So it's not like, you know, they're behind closed doors doing bad things to kids, right? That's not what it is. It's like under the tree, you know, having this conversation. And you see this older man having very serious conversation with a seven-year-old and talking about things that are very important, you know? And, and in the conversation, you see them talking to, they're talking to an equal. And this is something that, um, it's while now it's it's reported out there the respect that we had for the child you the child is supposed to address you the adult with respect but you also owe that respect back addressing that child so this is you can see now the discrepancy between that and what we have today and just like with the capitalism they claim that africa is socialist no it's not socialism was brought by colonialism the free markets where are you know it, it's part of my traditional heritage from before the, the, the white men ever came to the continent. And so even here, we, it was the same thing. It was the same thing. And I would like to argue even that, um, in my opinion, I think um, it was all quite deliberate because on top of uh, the top down, you also had the colonial you know, flavor of really top down. Because I think if you're going to have a colony and uh, you need to create people who are very obedient. And you cannot be raising every single child to become an obedient person. So what you do is you give that job to the parents and the parents are non-suspecting for them on top of that, you know, being a uh, person with status in this situation is like somebody who, who has these degrees maybe. And what does it mean to be a good citizen? It means to be an obedient citizen. An obedient citizen. So you had all of these values that were instilled, that were turned into values by the colonizer, so that way it makes it easy for them to actually keep us under control. You, As a colonizer, you do not want people necessarily thinking for themselves. As a colonizer, you do not want people necessarily, um, you know, being critical thinkers and um, not people who are have their own agency and can do their own thing. So what does it do today? And today you see it so clearly, uh, Anna. The peop- so many folks in Senegal have not been able to go to school in the first place, or if they went, they stopped school very early because maybe you're a little girl and you have to be home helping fa- the family. Maybe you're, little, maybe you're a boy and at some point, maybe 12, 14, you clearly can tell that school is going to get you nowhere. You don't understand what's going on over there. It's better for you to get out and get an apprentice job somewhere. At least you make a little bit of money and later, you know, maybe you can become a carpenter or something like that, right? So, but very quickly people get out of school, which means they have not been really tainted by this top-down way of doing things. And you know, today it's funny because my employees, it's very funny. If I, I can tell you, if I'm gonna hire somebody with degrees, it's, I'm gonna have all types of problems. 
from people who have no sense of initiative, no sense of, um, you know, doing more than they, when, when the contract says they should do. Um, people who, for the most part, are very kind of entitled, you know, like that little. So basically, on top of that, the, the Senegalese school trains most people who go through it to be French bureaucrats, literally French bureaucrats. And um, so you can imagine that you're not going to have entrepreneurship with French bureaucrats. French bureaucrats are simply not going to create businesses. I'm sorry. You know, and even if you want to hire them in your business, you have to be very careful what positions you give them in. Right. So in so and you see very clearly my best employees, the ones who can really function with the company and have a flexibility to move with, you know, the natural life of a company, especially when you're early stage. It's very much the ones who have not gone to school. So what we have today is my most interesting people are in a way those who did not go to school. While those who went to school and supposedly have the know-how to be accountants, to be this, to be that, the problem you have is very rigid mindsets. And uh, it's not just because in this case, maybe they're, they're um, accountants, because you might tell me, well, accountants are like that everywhere around the world, my God. I know more or less, but not all of them. In any case, my point is, regardless of what it is, they just, it seems like they came out of a mold. And in the worst possible situation, and I found myself today, most of the people I have did not go to school past age 15, but yet they are so roll up your, you roll up your sleeves and get it done. I had some of these women, when they started working with me, they couldn't read their name and they couldn't count supposedly. But I tell you, there is, they have never, they're never off one dime. Never. <laughs> no, I don't know how they do this, but never off one dime. And of course, from there, we take them in. And by the time we're done, they know how to read, they know how to write. They totally can catch on on all the skill sets that they need, but school supposedly would have should have provided them. So what I'm seeing here is the ones who went to school are trained to be French bureaucrats and not really worth. I mean, it's really hard for me to try and integrate them. And it's just not me. It's, it's like the whole system is not designed for that. You know how the world works. But yet the ones who are not who didn't go to school are are most entrepreneurial people. And so we we have this cross kind of. And uh, we're trying to reconcile that. We're trying to see, how, can we get both going? Because it's totally possible, but only through the type of education that we're providing, we're providing with, on our, in our case, and that I know you've probably went through, whether it was through homeschooling or specific, you know, type of, um, uh, you know, um, schools that exist, you know, follow the same philosophy, but pretty much that's what you have. And it's very interesting. It is very interesting to the point that now, I almost don't want to hire anybody who has even made it to high school because the more, the longer they stayed in the system and the more the programming has happened in their brains and they just can't let it go. They, they just can't. It's just like, it's, it's, it's like you, very much people are formatted to do exactly what you tell them to do. Um, to the, and so, and another thing that I do also, um, this is more like education that I continue within the company is every time I explain, we ask something of our, you know, um, colleagues, that's how I call, you know, our workers. Every time we ask something to our colleagues or our team members, it's very important for me to explain to them the why and the principles behind why we have to do this. Why do we have to have batch, batch codes? Why do we have to have even insurance? Why um, do they have to, you know, when they first come, get, change their clothes, change, um, you know, like sanitize hands, everything, their area, every, you explain everything. And then what you find is once they understand what's going on, they actually come up with better ways to get it done. 
than what sometimes, you know, the people, the experts who trained us have come up with. It's very interesting. Today's episode is brought to you by the original sponsor of the Hannah Franklin podcast, the John Galt Mortgage Company. My friends Mitch and Tim launched the John Galt Mortgage Company earlier this year, and I knew immediately that I wanted them to be the very first sponsor of the show because I'm such a fan of what they're doing. Mitch and Tim had been working in the real estate world for years, and they realized that mortgages are way more expensive than they need to be. Most people don't realize how much extra profit is baked into the cost of a mortgage. Most real estate agents don't even know. So Mitch and Tim decided to build a new kind of mortgage company, one where they voluntarily cap their profit on every transaction. And by lowering their own commission, they pass on the savings to you in the form of a lower interest rate than what everyone else is charging. For compliance reasons, I can't share specific dollar amounts here, but I've seen some pricing examples and the monthly payment can be a lot lower than with a traditional lender. And I mean a lot lower. Mitch and Tim are also personal friends of mine, and they named their company the John Galt Mortgage Company, which tells you everything you need to know about them. I am not currently in the market for a house, but when I am, I will absolutely be working with them as my mortgage broker. You can find more about them at www.johngaltmortgage.com, or you can find a link to their website down in the show notes. And if you're curious about the name and you don't get the reference, Google, who is John Galt? Okay, back to the show. I've heard you speak some about your own childhood mm -hmm. in Senegal and about how the, the differences in how you were raised versus how children in America are raised. Yeah. And I've heard you talk about the responsibility that you had yeah. as a child. And yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like there's sort of this this parallel, almost like these tense of pulls tugging against each other, where there's this very top-down system. And it sounds like there's this very heavy emphasis on credentialism too, the way that I've heard you describe it here. And, and when we've spoken about this before, it sounds like there's this, you know, very bureaucratic system that's very entrenched in its own, in, in itself, in its own ways of being. And there's this heavy emphasis on well, like, did you go through the system, get the credential? Now you're like qualified to do the thing because you have the piece of paper, not because you have any experience doing it. And there's this very, I mean, honestly, it sounds like an incredibly disembodying education experience where it's pulling you completely out of place. There's no connection to where you are living and where you are from and the culture that you're in, but also even the environment like there's no, you're not learning these connections to who are your ancestors, who are the heroes of your ancestors, what is the story of your place? It's very heady and removed, which yeah. is very disorienting for a human at any stage of life, but especially as a child to have a very disembodied, dislocated paradigm that you're existing in this like weird sort of disconnected environment that like doesn't quite exist in physical reality and yet you're expected somehow to like live and grow within it. But at the same time, it sounds like there's also this tradition of a very embodied, a very grounded, anchored way of educating your children. You know, you like the, the passage that you read to us earlier about how learning how to talk about your ancestors and your lineage, because that's what 
anchors you in time and in place and in community and in family and all of those things are very important as you're operating understanding of where you are in the world. But when you're learning about posture, it's because there's this very clear through line to how you're going to live in your community and what's going to be beneficial to you. And so there's this tradition of very embodied, very connected education. And so there's these two things that there's sort of this like parasitic, almost Mm -hmm. external system that's Mm -hmm. sort of pulling away from this cultural tradition. And yet it sounds like the tradition also still exists. So when I've heard you talk about like, please correct the lines that I'm drawing here, because I don't, this is a murky picture that I'm, 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 I'm highlighting the things that are standing out to me, but I want to hear good. you correct, you know, you, you make the painting, you take the painting, then you show us an actual picture. Um, but there's, you know, it, it feels like there's also, there's, you know, when I've heard you speak about your upbringing and the fact that you had a lot of responsibility, like I've heard you tell stories about like you had to go to market and barter for things. And the bartering was actually very important because you only had so many resources. So if you were bartering prices that actually made a meaningful difference in what your family was eating that week. And so, and that was as a very small child, you're getting this responsibility. And some of that, I'm wondering if, you know, some of that is circumstantial where you're just living in a world where that's necessary based on circumstances, you have to be useful and take responsibility quickly versus how much of this is sort of part of the tr- the cultural tradition that maybe is, you know, it's, it's that way for a reason, much more intentionally than just somebody has yeah, to go to market and I can't, so I'm going to send my daughter. <laughs> and, you know, maybe, maybe some of the benefits that you feel from having grown up in that type of environment too, where you had more responsibility. I'm really curious both to hear you correct everything that I just said, but also to hear you expand on this. I find this really interesting. Yeah, Yeah, no, um, no, I think you, I think you depicted it right. Uh, So I have nothing to correct there. Maybe what I can do is maybe share with people a little bit more so we understand, because even after I moved to France, uh, to Germany and then to France, you know, it just... How old were you? Seven. Seven, Um, okay. But anyway, but I remember very much, you know, um, at home. So basically my parents at right around issue, they uh, migrated uh, to Europe, leaving me behind with my grandma. Uh, They did what, you know, so many parents do from, from Africa. They left me behind uh, on in, in search of a better life for me. And so in this case, they didn't take me with them because they didn't know if the journey was going to work, was going to be successful or not. And so not to disrupt me, you know, they said, OK, you stay there until we know we made it for sure. And then you can come over. And of course, a few years later, they called for me to come because, you know, things worked and uh, things were stable. So it would be good for me to go. And uh, yeah, they were taking me from one from one stable situation to another situation that would hopefully be stable as well. But uh, even then, when I was back home, I remember very well, you know, the thing is, I I benefited from growing up as what I call a free ranch kid. Literally, I was a free ranch kid. I did not want to go to school. Grandma said, leave her alone. She's not going to school. Because she was very confident in the fact that um, for her, what is cool anyway? What is cool anyway? You know, little, little, little human beings, the, when you're a little human being, you're, the job at, at, at work is to basically take you from this raw, 
you know, rough personality that you are to ideally have a well-rounded person whom we're going to discover your, your, your character. We're going to discover your passions. We're going to discover who you are. What I mean, what I mean by character is more of that. We're going to discover who you are, who are you? And so that's really what the job is uh, from when a child is born to, for the adult is very much to help accompany you through the different uh, uh, phases of the journey. It's really very much being a guide, right? So then again, going back to Montessori, um, the way we looked at child rearing very much for the longest time was very much about being a guide. This idea of doing everything for you, not only in our societies, um, it's not, it's not, it doesn't work because we believed again in not really doing things for, for you. Uh, you have to really do it in order to be able to learn it. But it also helps that um, if you're living in a, in a, under circumstances where you don't have much, but you know, it's great that all hands are helping. So in our case, it was not just utilitarian. It was also philosophical, I would, I would argue. And the reason why I say that is because even after I moved, you know, to Europe and later when we're in France, by all means, you know, you can say we didn't need any of that stuff anymore, but my parents were, very clear about no um you don't you don't waste just because you can waste you you always have to try and be as um as uh, responsible as possible so that's how i know it's also a philosophy so when the philosophy also is um support is also utilitarian why not it's a double whammy right you get you win on both sides but um so anyway so my grandma very i was very much a free range kid didn't go to school but for her because for her, school is not, you don't have to go to school to learn, to still learn, right? What matters is to learn. What matters is development. But in her mind, school is not, it's not, you don't have to be in this box called school in order for that to happen. And so she was very confident about that. And uh, because that's pretty much the way she was raised herself. And so you see some families very much keep that going. But some of the families, especially the ones who are, want to call themselves elite, they buy into the status thing to do. That's why we call them so. The status thing to do is to send, you know, your kids to these schools and um, to become this way and maybe a degree and speak uh, French. And uh, you have some families where they don't even want their kids to speak Wolof in the in the household because that's how down you look on your on your indigenous background. And it's funny because I talked at some point to some of my Indian friends. I talked to some of my uh, Chinese friends. And it seems like, uh, of course, many other other African nations' friends. And it seems like um, this phenomenon is is not just with with Senegal. I've I've seen friends from different parts of the world that are not from the dominant cultures say the same thing that some of them would be actually hit if they spoke their indigenous language because the game is we got to be good at this at this other language that because if you don't have it you're not going to be able to participate i could see why parents would would do that minus the beating of course that's another problem there's there's beating a lot of beating going on but in any case i go back um my grandma was very confident in the fact that uh development and learning yes is the goal but it doesn't have to happen it doesn't happen in those that square thing called school and so she was just like leave her alone and indeed i learned a lot of things like very much her style was to let me learn through my experiences literally like every morning the goal the, i had a little pack of boys you know i was a little chief and i was a chief of clan and they would show up and uh, the game was hey what do you guys all want to do and of course somebody's going to want to go to the beach and and fish what we call fishing really is was taking our little buckets and going to the to the to the, to the shores 
And when the fishermen come back, basically us begging them for their ugly fish that they can't sell, that's pretty much what we call fishing, but whatever. So we would go with it. So that's what they wanted to go do. So we would go there and then... um, and then, you know, somebody wanted to go soccer playing across the field from my grandma's house. And somebody else just wants to go and hang out at the market, whatever. And then, you know, and nobody wants to do the same thing as the other person. Of course not. And so my job was to try eventually to get them all to agree on something, right? And usually most, most of the time we were also doing what I wanted to do. But I couldn't tell them, we're going to do what I want to do. I, couldn't, I cannot boss them around because otherwise you're going to lose them. Because you know how it is. You try to boss people around and then they, when you lose them, right? It doesn't go, any, it doesn't go it, sometimes it doesn't work out so well. So what was happening during those times? I was learning to manage a little team. I was learning to also solve, uh, you know, arguments. We were arguing all the time, but most of the time we had to solve it among ourselves. And when things were really crazy and dire, then we might get my grandma involved or, or some of our adults involved. And even then, oftentimes we get sent back to our own selves to figure it out, you know? Um, and I remember later on, even with my own parents, if uh, we were, f- were four kids, if we were I'm the oldest, if we would argue about something, then the, the rule was, if my sister tries to go to my mom and tells on me, basically all of us are punished, including her, even though she's been done wrong. It doesn't matter. The thing is, you figure it out yourself. I don't want to hear it, right? Now, of course, if we're about to, to stab some each other, then they get involved, right? But other than right. that, no, I'm not getting involved in this. So we kind of very much grew up like that. I grew up like that. And my grandma also, sometimes I would come back because, of course, I was such a crazy kid causing, you know, chaos everywhere I go, you know, having arguments. And sometimes, of course, I get punched here, punched there. And when that was the case, the issue would get to, or I punch somebody, but issue would get to my grandma, all the way to my grandma. She would try to find what happened. And that was the other thing. You see, she never gets on my case, like for the sake of just because supposedly something wrong happened. She will always try to find out what happened. So she will always ask me my version of things, which means she knew that I was not, I would not lie to her because there's no, like whether it, so I would talk with no fears because even the way she would ask the questions, she wouldn't even come with a sense of disappointment or what did you do? Like, you know how I see so many parents do? It was just like, okay. You know, like she would calm the situation down and then her and I, we go in a private area and there we sit down, she faces, she, and she sits in front of me, right? Not like on the side, not this, not behind me, what, in front of me. She always rises, um, lowers herself to my level so she can see me in the eyes. I'll never forget that. And then she talks to me. Then it's like, what happened? But the what happened is very open. It's not, she's not judging me. She's not accusing me, regardless of what might what this, what she might have heard or she might have been told. And then I get to tell my side of the story. And of course she can tell it's true because I had no reason to lie because she's not going to hit me. She's not, I just know my grandma is on my camp all the time, even if I'm wrong, because she'll tell me you're wrong. And then we'll talk. And so sometimes she, she would be like, you know what, actually you, I'm so glad you did that or whatever. Or sometimes she's like, you know, and then I would be like, yeah, grandma, I mean, yeah. And I would get sometimes to them, to what I did wrong on my own. You know, I would be like, you know, as I talk about it, then I'm realizing that maybe, you know, I should not have done that. Um, maybe I didn't have any business going and uh, trying to play with the bigger kids. And when they didn't want to play with me for me to, or when they didn't want to hang out with me for me to grab, a, you know, like a handful of sand and just throw it at his face because I do stuff like that. Um, you know, things like, you know, things like that. She would be, just, be like, yeah, I guess, I guess you're right. And sometimes, you know, we just agree that, you know, 
I'm not buying what you're, I'm, yeah, I, I might still do this next time. No, literally, I remember sometimes being, and then she would be just like, okay, fine, but I guess you're going to have problems again. And I'm like, fine. So, so, so anyway, until, you know, one day things really go bad. And then of course I stop on my own. But anyway, what I'm trying to say with this is it was very much learn as you go. Um, I have a big burn on my thigh because, because why? Because when we go beg for the fish, we then go and scale off the fish, you know, ourselves. And then we organize a little fire. So I would go to some of the people who were making tea by the, uh, you know, like some of the guys who were making tea on the little, um, you know, like a coal stove, coal, whatever. So we go there and we ask the people, are you done with uh, your tea thing? Yeah, they were, they were done with it, but the coals are still strong and going. So we put a little, you know, we put our fish on there and start to roll it around and all of that stuff. For the most part, we were fine. But here we are. I mean, it's literally six, seven, playing with, uh, playing with hot coals, basically barbecuing a piece of fish, literally. And then when it would be cooked, take it over to my grandma. She would give us some of her onion sauce, and there, right there, we're having a snack. There you go. But one day, it didn't go so well for me because there's a piece of paper that flew, caught on fire, flew, continued, flew, continued flying, got me to the fire, and you know, eventually I had a burn. Okay, yeah, it's true. It was not good, but uh, whatever they say, what doesn't kill you doesn't uh, makes you stronger. And I had a lot of these things. I have like scraps everywhere, like you know, everywhere. You would think people were beating me up, but that's how I kind of grew up. And uh, I had really, really good fun memories of that time of my life. I learned to stop hitting birds, not because somebody told me it was the wrong thing to do, but eventually I had to learn the hard way. That um, you read in the book what happened to me one day trying to hit birds with my slingshot. Uh, all of that stuff. So anyway, so when I went to France, uh, yeah, and my and I would be sent. Um, so I would help my grandma with her vegetable garden because her vegetable garden is what she uh, would actually make money from. So she would. So we, I would help her with it. You know, go get fresh, fetch the water, bring the water, and water what I could. You know, I uh, would um, weed things out, and then I would also collect. Um, you know, the vegetables with her. I remember being being stung so many times by the okra. We had a lot of okra in our diet. We have a lot of okra and you know how okra is. It has this little, uh, you know, I don't know how you call it, spikes or whatever it is. Um, you know, those things that, um, that uh, you know, sting you a little bit. Mm -hmm. So okra, we had, um, yeah, all of those things and then put it in the basket, help her. Then we go to the market together and, you know, selling this stuff, you know. And uh, for me, it was very real because I could see the linkage between her selling this, the money she's getting from it, and then how then when she's done getting that money herself, then we would go through the market and she would use that money to buy fish, uh, to buy, um, you know, then we would get some bread, all of that stuff. I could see literally the, the relationship between growing the vegetable all the way to having food back on our table literally, or her buying me clothes, all of that stuff. I could see the money going into her hand and then coming out of her hands when we go to the tailor for her to pay the tailor to make my clothes or for her to buy the fabric. So you see, when you, when you, when you live something like that, everything becomes very real for you. you. You get the relationship between the work you produced and what it did for you. And also probably the way it makes you feel. And later when I went back, um, and so that's why when my grandma would send me, you know, um, sometimes I would be the one going to maybe buy the bread or whatever, because it's very easy to run a corner. Somebody has a little bread concession. You go there 
it's very real for me, you know, and I go there and I know that uh, you barter a little bit because then you can, you get to bring more money, more bread back home, all of that stuff. And then when I, when I uh, moved to uh, Germany and then to France, my parents still kept sending me to the bakery or to literally doing some little groceries, light groceries, all of that. And it was very important for me to, um, to even like when I would go and buy groceries or fruits or vegetables, I was very good at uh, even picking the fruits myself, you know, like picking the fruits, knowing the guy because he's like, oh, she's a younger kid who comes to buy this thing. She probably knows nothing. I'm like, uh-uh, I don't want those apples. I don't want those, those mangoes or rotten because, you know, I was just, because that's pretty much what you would do at school. And I was always, I grew up with this sense of value. And value is not necessarily what is the cheapest, but it's understanding quality versus price and making sure it matches. So I was always, always like that. And you see, you could say that at some point when we were in France, we no longer, it was not about, you know, being poor or anything because we were no longer that. But still, I kept that mentality. And I think, um, I think that's what we have kind of lost in the West. I mean, a lot of people, it's not only kids, a lot of people are disconnected. Uh, but, uh, they're disconnected from the means of production and what the means of production mean towards, you know, in terms of earning uh, an income and what that income goes then to do. It, it's The whole thing is very disconnected. But for me, it always, it was very um, real from a very early age. From a very early age, I had a, a, a very clear, almost visceral, because I could see it, um, understanding of between work, making money, and using it to provide for yourself. And I think that's that's lost, honestly, to be to to be honest. It's absolutely lost. It's lost everywhere. It's something that's I think most kids don't understand the direct relationship between those two things. Mm -hmm. But you also, I think they also don't understand how directly their own inputs can become outputs and vice versa. So I think it's really interesting to watch a child discover how to think entrepreneurially mm -hmm. because often I think it happens in the form of play or it happens yeah. in the form of problem solving. So for me, my yeah. first experience as an entrepreneur, I was, uh, there were a few moments where like I do something and I get a little bit of money for it. I was like, whoa, that's cool. But the real moment, I was 12 when I started my first real business and it was very much a, uh, I was just playing, I was just doing things. And then I discovered that people were appreciating what I was doing and they were interested in buying what I was making. So I was making hand-knitted dolls for my sister and the other moms in my homeschool co-op really loved them and wanted to know if they could buy them too. And I was like, well, I was just playing. Like, I just wondered if I could make this thing. And I thought I'd give it to my sister because I you know, thought she'd like it. It didn't that's occur right. to me that this could become a business. And so that's I think- right. I think that's it's common for kids to sort of accidentally discover this or it's problem solving where they want money for something. You know, it's like mom's like, well, you can get a dog if you can like pay for it. And the kid's like, okay, how do I make money so that I can have a puppy like I've always wanted? And that's then right. they go to problem solving. Like, what are all the things that people might pay me to do? Like low, mow the lawn, shovel snow, <laughs> sell lemonade, whatever. That's right. But it's this really interesting set of thought processes to watch a child move through where they realize that they can do something in the world and they can convert their effort into either currency or something else that someone finds valuable 
that they can then continue to exchange or exchange yeah. with. Yeah. And it's interesting to watch that happen because it's not necessarily commonplace. Like it's fascinating because so many kids never have that moment. And yeah. there is, you know, there, there's lots of layers to this. You know, some people are more predisposed predisposed to be entrepreneurs. Some people don't have as much of the temperate or temperament or the tolerance for it. But that doesn't mean that that understanding of how the world works can't be there. Like, even if you don't want to start businesses, that doesn't mean that it has to be counterintuitive that you could or that you, you know, you might want some extra money. And so you're going to, you know, run a big sale or something like the, the input output into the world relationship is happening all around us. And so it, it, should be somewhat intuitive. And I think we've gone through points in history and and different cultures and different parts of the world at different points in time where it has been more intuitive that, you know, if you want to make a little extra money to support yourself, you just do this extra thing and then you exchange it for money. But so much of the very institutionalized system that we live in and, you know, on national and continental levels are they're they're not designed to teach that because that is not a valuable input into the system at large. Like, you know, you making cookies and selling them to everybody in your neighborhood to fund your kid's soccer trip or whatever. Like that's, that's not helpful to the broader infrastructure. It's too small of an input. It's like not, it's not a thing that ever gets focused on, but these moments where kids realize it are so pivotal to their development as humans, but also in their own both self-efficacy, but also their competence in navigating the world and being able to create the outputs that they want. And yeah. I think, I know we don't have a ton of time and I'm going to ask you a very big question nope. and we'll probably need to keep this somewhat succinct, yeah. but... But there's one thing more I wanted to say, Hannah, when you were talking yeah. about that. Because for me, it's not just about um, when the value is about money. For me, it's really like value with a big V, right? With um, mm. value with a big V. And one more thing that I would say is I am personally, I'm one of those people who the more toys I see created and exist and the more worried I am. No, seriously, because I'm one of those people who, it's funny because one of the first gifts that my father gave me when I, when I was still in Senegal and, you know, waiting to be reunited and not being reunited with them yet was a big size, um, big size doll, you know, like a real size doll. But for me, the doll, I never touched the doll. It was just over there. But what I, where I'm going with this is, the thing is, the reason why I really had very few toys in my life, even when we were in Europe and we could have afforded toys, is because I never felt the need for toys. Because what were the toys most of a part? You know, I see all of these kids, they like to have a little baby, you know, to take care of and um, kind of change the, the diapers on. I'm like, that's not... Are you kidding me? I was changing my brother's diapers. You know what I mean? And I was helping um, because my, my brother came later. By the time I come to Germany, my sisters were there already. But a lot of these things I was already doing, you know, when people are getting like little things to wash clothes and it's a little uh, toy thing. No, I literally had to wash clothes even when we were in uh, in Europe. And I think for this is something also where I would like to um, really call out parents on this. I think prosperity, we all, I, I want to get to 2.5 billion prosperous Africans by 2050, but prosperity should not have to entail robbing our kids from, I, I very much believe, you know, like very um, important 
tasks that they can do. Like, you would be surprised if I told you that it never occurred to me if my parents had money or no, or not, until I was maybe 17. It was never even a question for me. Do we, are we poor? Are we rich? Never crossed my mind. It's very funny, very interesting. And it never crossed my mind. And, um, but we were doing all types of things, right? Like I said, I was always very uh, frugal, you know, uh, value for value. I um, was helping with, um, you know, raising my, my, my brother and my sisters. I would be the babysitter and at no time my parents would have to pay me to watch, you know, to watch my own, you know, brothers and sisters. I, um, you know, we, we had to share bedrooms and I, by now I know that it didn't have to be that way, but I think my, but my parents just made sure that we definitely did not um, have our responsibilities taken away from us. And see this, I think many parents, I see them making this, uh, I don't. I won't call it a mistake, but it's. I think it's breeding. It's. 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 It's being counter, counterproductive. I understand the need you might have for your kids to be comfortable, um, have tons of things you didn't have. But I really think that this is something that um, I would like for traditional societies to not give up on. Me, as I'm going to help my nation and my continent uh, build their way to prosperity, there are some things that I'm very clear about, and I think. The, the responsibilities of a child should not be looked as chores, but, you know, it's a whole opportunity for education. Of course, you know, I'm not talking about five-year-olds, you know, dragging, doing hardcore work or anything like that, but each age with what it can do, right? Um, so there, that's just something that I have observed that I really, because you see it with children of immigrants in this country, what the children are able to do and what they have no problem doing, and it's not even like they have to be paid for it by their own families because they, they realize you're contributing. When you have a child of an immigrant who after work, I, I see it after school, my, my hairdresser, when I go to my hairdresser, Senegalese, right? Um, w working mom, doing hair all day long, and she has a little salon. Well, when the kid is done from school, instead of going and fooling around in the neighborhood and turning into, you know, who knows what, it's like, as soon as you're done with school, the, bu the bus is dropping you off here or the dad is going to go pick him up, go back to drop him off at mom's place and of work, place of work and go back to work himself if he's still not the time. And that kid right there is sitting in in one of his chairs, you know, with, you know, like the chair where you go and you have a big thing to cover you. So the kid is underneath that. Of course, it's not, it's not, it's not on, but that's where he sits and he's doing his homework over there. And even that attitude, I would, it's, where do you see American kids? They were like, I'm bored. I don't want to be here. And I see them. They talk to their parents in a very decent manner, all of that stuff. But that kid also knows because sometimes, sometimes you know, the kid is going to maybe complain about this or that. And then, um, and then what you see when you hear when the mom is explaining, eventually the kid is getting to understand that him or her being willing to come and, and be based out of there until mom can go home, he's actually helping his mom be able to do a job that eventually will keep the family in business. And so you see, even there, it's, it's linked. And you see immigrants, the children of immigrants still have that. But then it gets lost once they have their own children. But I do think as a society, we really need to rethink all of that. We, it would be very important that whether, it doesn't matter if you're a billionaire or if you are, you know, um, a person of modest means, to really, really understand that kids need 
to feel responsible. And I think, again, there too, that was one of the great insights of someone like Maria Montessori. Kids want and need to feel that their, that their work matters. Um, there's, yeah, anyway, so I just wanted to add that because I'm, I'm appalled at the amount of toys. And uh, for someone like me, I never really had to rely on toys. The only thing I played with was chess and, um, you know, uh, checker, checkerboards. That's it. And that's, and I argue that that's not play. That's not um, a toy. It's uh, it's something else. But I never needed anything. And I felt like I was one of the most entertained uh, person, you know, growing up. So I want to, I, I find all of that really interesting. And I think to your point about Maria Montessori, I think that's, I could agree completely, but that's one of the things that she did very well is she bridged the gap between the childhood instinct to play and the childhood instinct to mimic the real world and also the reality that kids actually are very capable of doing a lot of things functionally that, you know, we think of as being things that older kids and adults are, that it's exclusively their responsibility. Younger kids crave the responsibility. They want to be actors in the world. They want to, they want to watch mom cook us, like put together a snack in the kitchen and they want to know what it feels like to do that. Yes. And so they, you know, in, you know, as America and many households will go to their play kitchen and they'll, they'll act it out. And that's, you know, an interface for them that's child size that they can play with. But in Montessori schools, everything is sized for the child, but they're given the responsibility. You're hungry. Why don't you go make a snack? And they're able to, and they're able to actually, you know, cut up the food and set the table and maybe offer a snack to their friend who's also hungry. And they're given this, this bridge between you know, the, the childhood limitations, like mm -hmm. the, the reality of being a child and this much larger scale adult world that they so long to be experimenting with because they're hardwired to try it in preparation of actually having to do the thing when they're adults, which is, you know, watching that function of play at, at the kid, you know, in the play kitchen or like making the snack is a grand metaphor for so much of what's happening in childhood all the way through to adulthood where you're you're testing your capacity to do the things that one day when you become an adult, either all of a sudden it's like, okay, you're 18, you graduated from high school, you're an adult now, or if it's, you know, more gradual that 16, you know, 15, you get a job, 16, you get a car, you know, yeah. but they're, yeah. as they gain these responsibilities, they've already tried their hand at all of it. So they're prepared to do it. But one of the other things, and I know we don't have a lot of time left, um, but I'd like to touch on this very briefly because you mentioned this earlier and I think that this is a really important part of the story of what you're building. You talked about teaching kids about entrepreneurship a couple yeah. of times, but you also talked about entrepreneurship being the road out of poverty for people in Africa. And you talk about that being more important than the very top-down education that one might think. And I know that you you get into this extensively in your book. You've done lots of talks about this already. So I know that, you know, we could talk about this for five hours and not cover everything. But I want to I want to talk about this specifically in the context of education. But I think I think this also this this gap in maybe some people's understanding also needs to be bridged that you're not going after building a better credentialing school. You're not trying to build something that's going to help kids get the piece of paper that says they're qualified to be an accountant, but they actually, you know, like they actually learn the French. So it's like they're going to school and they, you know, as it stands now, they can go all the way through a school in Senegal, graduate 
and their French is still very broken and they have trouble, you know, articulating their thoughts in the, the bureaucratic language of their country. And so you're, you're not just going and saying, well, let's fix that problem. Let's make it make sure all the kids going to a school actually speak French, but they're still going through the system. You're doing a fundamental shift in paradigm where you're saying, you know, the colonial schools are teaching kids to be bureaucrats, but that's not going to help their communities nope. prosper. They need to learn how to think entrepreneurially so that nope. they can go and start building the things that they want to see in yeah. their communities and in their country and in their personal lives. Like they need to start thinking like builders so that yeah. they can from the ground up instead of from the top down, start building the things that yeah. they want to see in their world and benefit from in their individual and communal lives. And yeah. I think that that's so important that entrepreneurship is this entirely different paradigm, even for people who, because I think entrepreneurship is also a very big, like when we talk about it as a paradigm, it's yeah. much more than a vocation. So when someone's an entrepreneur, it means they started a business usually. Yeah. But it's a whole mindset. Yeah, entrepreneurial thinking, like they could be working for you inside of your your company and they're not starting anything of their own, but they're thinking entrepreneurially, which are the types of people that you want to hire. So I just want to, before we, before we wrap up this conversation, I want to, I'd love to hear you just like emphasize a little bit more yep. like why this is so important, not, yes. you know, in Senegal specifically, but also in Africa more broadly and also like scaling it out even further, like, you know, clicking the plus button on the map one more time, like yep. on a, not even just, you know, on one continent, but on all of the continents, this shift yep. is so important. And I yep. think you do such a great job explaining why. And I think yep. it's something that's not always intuitive, but is really important to understand. No, it is. Well, thank you. Yeah. So basically I explained earlier that my goal in this life is for Africans to become co-creators in, uh, prosperity and entrepreneurship. And, um, you know, we need to have 2.5 billion Africans being prosperous by 2050. Something that's very simple is the solution to poverty, which is what Africa is mostly plagued with. The solution to poverty is prosperity. Prosperity is built by entrepreneurs, period. They just make the whole machine run. Okay. <laughs> period. Uh, but for entrepreneurship to thrive, to thrive, you need a good business environment for it. So you have to have a world-class business environment for the best, most um, optimized outcome. So that's for the externalities. But from the person standpoint, you also need to have somebody who is really prepared to take the best advantage of such a business class environment. Meaning if you provide with the, a great business environment, you have a free market all around you, you're really free to enterprise and everything, but you don't know what it is to be free. And that's the other thing for me. Entrepreneurship is the practice of freedom. It really is. That's how I put them together. It's a practice of freedom and um, freedom is all, and it's also the other way I describe entrepreneurship is entrepreneurs are those who criticize by creating, right? So um, in this situation, so you all of a sudden, when you understand why entrepreneurship is so important to not only Africa, but to anyone and anywhere in the world where people uh, want to build prosperity and keep it as well and keep going, because it's very easy to scale back, to, to slide back. 
if um, if you if you start you know having an, a society of you know bureaucrats, um, people are living people are no longer being as entrepreneurial as they should be, you're going to start to slide back. So this is something that has to be maintained. And it's something that has to not only be maintained, but it has to be nourished. Era after era after era. So you start, so if poverty is my biggest problem, because poverty is my problem, and if the way we're going to become global co-creators of prosperity and innovation is through entrepreneurship, then you understand why I'm working on those two. I'm working on the business environment. So that's the whole other aspect of my life. That's what this book talks about a lot of. How do we get there? And another thing that I'm working on is on the people themselves. Because in order to, for you to have a, an amazing tomato plant or to have, you know, you have to have the seed itself has to have some of the best qualities. So here we're talking about all of these concepts of virtues that the person has to have. So the seed, the seed has to be of the best quality or optimized the, the most, as well as the soil and the environment in which you're going to plant that seed. Those two need to happen together for you to have the most beautiful tomato plant at the end of the day, producing the juiciest, most healthy tomatoes that you can hope for. Us humans are no, no different. We're part of nature after all, right? But that's really pretty much what it is. For me, the recipe is just that. And then you keep on watering it. But that, to me, is part of also the environment. So I am doing a lot of work on the environment part with the, especially the startup cities and all of that good stuff where we're trying to really provide people in Africa with world-class business environments that they detrimentally lack right now. But at the same time, we also need to make sure that the seeds, aka the people, also are optimized for great success in an entrepreneurial world so that they become entrepreneurs themselves or they become intrapreneurs. So people who maybe they work for other you know, people, but uh, they work for entrepreneurs, but within that, they are people who really bring an entrepreneurial mindset. Because whenever you have an entrepreneurial mindset, everything just goes better and goes faster because basically these are solutions it, the, the solutions are provided, like I said, criticized by creating. You're, you, these are solutioners, solutioners. So the more solutions we can, we can find, the more problems we can solve, the, more, the better we do and the faster we go and the more innovations get to pop up. So that's why for me, this school, it was very important. You see, so many people got all excited. Ah, oh, we're supporting a school in Africa. Don't take me wrong. I'm not going to do what people do to Mr. Beast and be like, oh my God, butt out. You know, we don't want your help or whatever. That's not bad. But just like, can we, can we redirect uh, your, your thinking? Can we shift your thinking about education? Should we still in the 21st century be simply happy because we helped um, kids in Africa become literate, meaning knowing their ABCs and knowing how to count? Don't take me wrong. It is a good first step. But let's be honest. Is that really what's going to get this kid to survive and thrive? Because I'm not just happy with surviving. We need to thrive. We need to flourish. Is that what's going to get this kid to really thrive and flourish, especially in the 21st century? Kids who maybe by the time they're done, they have never yet touched a, a, a computer and they're going to learn, the, they're going to touch the first computer in their life when they're going to be maybe 21 or 22, if they're lucky to even have a job or an internship or something that actually gets them in a position where they use that. And then guess what? They're going to be behind everybody. They don't know how to build spreadsheets or anything like that. So... So you see the work we have to do. 
And so for us, the catching up is simply no longer an option. We have to leapfrog. We completely have to leapfrog. So for me, it's not just like even changing the paradigm. It's like you're changing the paradigm, you're also leapfrogging, you're doing so many things at the same time. But kids, but kids can handle it. They can handle it. That's what I love about kids. They can handle it. They don't, they don't know what came before. They don't need to know what came before. You put it in front of them, they're going to go for it. So that's why the school we're doing here, it's really about um, giving them the tools to be lifelong learners. I'll give you an example. At the school, every child has to sign an agreement. Literally. There is a, child's, there is a children's agreement. And it's, we kept it very simple. But they have to read it, talk about it with their guide. And most importantly, there is, a, there is a signing ceremony. Because your word is your bond. You see, all of these very, when I talked about virtues, they need, and everything we ask of them, like they're, they're, they're signing this agreement saying that they're going to be on time. They're going to be, they're going to go for punctuality. They're going to go for being civil towards each other, all of these things. And for each one of them, we explain to them why this virtue is critical for them to thrive in the world of adults later on. Because in the world of, you know, if you, so we explain all of these things. So they know, they see that it's not just like something that adults are asking of them and it just sounds nice. But like even there, they see the relationship between that and where they're trying to go and where they are and where we're trying to go. So for everything like that, so discuss, uh, read it, discuss it, and then there is a signing ceremony. And then they sign the document and then they go on. But every time, and then every time there's a problem or if they're going to be doing something that get, went against what they signed, then of course you bring them together and you start talking and comparing what is it that they signed compared to what just happened and where do we go from there. So all of this stuff is very important. But for me, for us, most importantly also with the school, what we're doing, the curriculum is done in such a way that we expose them to so much. We expose them to the world. These are kids who, for some of them, have never gone to the capital city of their country for the most part. And all they see of it is maybe on TV or whatever. And let alone, um, before we started, they had no relationship between where their country is and maybe where the U.S. is. Although they hear about the U.S., they hear about France, they hear about all of these other places. So we're using, for example, a computer, using Google Earth, and then just kind of flying above the Earth. We stop wherever they want to stop. And um, maybe we're, you know, somewhere along the way, they decide to stop in Turkey. Why do you want to stop in Turkey? Oh, because, you know, my friend's mom, I heard, has moved to Turkey. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious. So Google Earth, you get to see, we zoom in. Maybe we, sometimes they know the address of where the mom lives or of this friend. And then they kind of look, they get to see the city, what it looks like. And then if there's more interest, then you pop up a video that we kind of all watch together. And very also you're using this all, by the way, to promote, you know, to kind of help them learn the a specific language as well. So just there's just like a lot of things that's kind of built in. And again, even here, we just follow the interests of a child in order to help them acquire some very important skill sets. Um, right now, one of the kids, uh, for example, you know, at our factory, uh, when people produce, when the ladies produce uh, the lip balms, the, 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 the body balms, all of that stuff, they, each one of them, there is a um, production sheet with, uh, you know, with uh, who, who made the pro who was in charge that day, who weighed all, weighted all the ingredients, what time did they um, start melting everything, what time did they start pouring, you know, all of that good stuff. And for each ingredient that went in, the lot number, 
all of that stuff and just, you know, all of this information that has to be there. What temperature was it when they were pouring? What temperature was it when they were unmolding? All of that stuff because, you know, we, we need to keep track of everything. So when it comes in into a sheet, right, and then that is kind of filed away, and normally that type of uh, that information, eventually one of the ladies should actually go and put it into the computer so that it's all saved in the cloud and everything. But instead of doing that, I'm asking one of our young people to actually do that. Because when they're doing this, now you can sit there and do YouTube tutorials or whatever as to how to create a spreadsheet or how to fill it up, how to you know learn how to fill out all of that stuff. Or you can have a real life experience where for something that you know matters because your mom is working over there and you know this is all real. This is not a play. This is not a play anymore. And of course, we have systems to make sure that the stuff is accurate. And even there, there's a system for him to be accurate. And guess what? Um, soon, I'm probably going to be paying this child, you know, some money that maybe he or she puts into a little into a little account, right? Or we put it into a little box like a piggy bank. And then that's some money that the kid is going to be able to have. But what we're trying to do is by the time they're 17 or 18 or 16, that some of these kids maybe are already doing some type of digital work that actually pays them quite well. You know what I mean? So this idea that you have to wait till you're 25, go through all of these, it's like, again, it's like being able to bring value, right? And so these are some of the things that we, that's the goal for later, but everything that they're doing is literally um, experiential learning. There's nothing that just, you know, play for the sake of playing or simulating stuff. We try to find in our natural environment, we try to find in our, in, in our daily, you know, uh, task, we try to find, uh, you know, like how can we get, how can we just get them to acquire some of these skills? Also, we have um, the Socratic discussion that they have on a regular basis. So if we're going to try to instill some values in people, like you would see, um, I will never forget, we had these classes where when the kids were younger, when they were maybe eight or seven, when we first got the first cohort, um, and they were reading these counts, you know, counts are like almost like your fake stories or fairy tales or whatever, and then reading about a king who would imprison uh, the people he would imprison into the walls and all of that. And then having to talk about the morals of that. Is it right? Not right? Why not? When would it be? When would it not be? How does it work? So we use the Socratic discussions and we choose, to this day, we choose our texts very carefully in order to kind of bring out some values and have the kids discuss them. We don't tell them what's right. We don't tell them what's wrong necessarily. But we have these conversations where eventually... It all pops up. It all pops up, and uh, you start to see people thinking, you know, for themselves. Michael does it very well with his school, his Socratic experience. You know, like if your best friend stole something, and you know they stole, would you go tell on them or not? Or why? 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 Yes. Why no? I don't know. Why do you don't know? What are the considerations? So you're really getting these young people to think about the type of society that they want to live in, and to think about what's right, what's wrong and to think about how to think about it, right? And so we do a lot of that as well. And it's very interesting because when you're surrounded by a, by a, a, a culture where there is such discrepancy between what the people are on their own and um, you know where poverty maybe has taken them or what they're trying to teach them in these public schools or whatever, things can be very disjointed. So this is, this is our attempt right there to build a subculture 
a subculture where even if kids are surrounded by adults who somehow have learned to not tell the truth because they think that's the only way to make it, or when you're in a top-down in a top-down environment, you know, when people make mistakes, they don't even own up to their mistakes because making a mistake means, and especially owning it means you're probably going to be fired. So people always do this. Um, so, but these kids were trying to give them, you know, a chance to really get started on the right foot. And so, um, that's, those are all the things that are basically everything we're trying to equip these kids with is embedded in everyday real life experiences and nothing feels fake. Nothing feels like, oh, we come to school, we're going to read this text, we're going to talk about the offer and all of that stuff. Well, we talk about the offer, but it comes into the normal conversation. Not, not, you're not preparing for a test. It's not about you preparing for a test, you know, like how many daughters did they have? And it's so funny because at first when we started um, doing this with the kids, you ask them, they read a we read something and then you ask them, so tell me more about what we just read. And literally you would see them almost repeating word for word what they just read. And I'm like, that's not what we're going after, but that's what for them going to doing school is. That's what the, ha the, the habit is. And eventually we had to go from there to even bringing up the concept of the character. How many characters are in the story? And then them being like, huh, what's a character? Okay. Well, you know, then you go through those things. And then, um, why, why do you think, um, the, why do you think the character is feeling this way or doing this or whatever? So all of a sudden now they have a different relationship to the story, to the story. And then there also we use it to do a little bit of math. Oh, um, your book yesterday, how many pages have you read? And then you see the person be like, like, okay, what page did you leave it at? Yeah, uh, when you first started your book, what page were you at? And then they were like, oh, 45. And then by the time you close it, what, what, uh, what page were you at? And then they, they go back to the book and they look where they went. Oh, 84. And then boom, right? All of a sudden you see them doing the little math on their little, um, you know, thing. And all of a sudden they give you that. So we're going from back and forth, different things. And it's all varied. It's all, but it all feels natural. And you remember when we talked earlier about Jomo Kenyatta saying it was conversational and it was all natural. Nothing felt out of place. Nothing felt like we're just trying to unnaturally, okay, now math, now this. Even when we're in math, when we're doing math, we use a lot of Khan Academy and other things. But even when we're doing math, all of a sudden now uh, we, we started with math, but all of a sudden we're into a little bit of biology because, oh, what's the difference between a rabbit and a hare? Okay, that's interesting. Because when, you know, when some, because you use your, they're speaking in a certain language, then you have to also translate it. And in that translation, you're going to have a little bit of a, of a mistake, of course. But instead of looking at it as a mistake, we look at it, as it, at it as an opportunity to actually even make, by the way, what's the distinction between a hare and, 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 um, and a, and a, and a, like I said, and a, and a rabbit, right? Because they're not the same. They look the same, but they're not the same. And anyway, so you see every opportunity. So our staff were basically trained for every opportunity to be a moment of learning, especially the, the, what somebody else might call a mistake. For us, we love those because those are where growth opportunity is. Because then we stop, you know, we're like, huh. What's weird? What made you want to say that? Or why? Oh, I see why why you would think it's a rabbit. But uh, anyway, so I won't want to bore you with that. But you see how this um, it's a very radical way of looking at things. And I know that um, there are so many people, the kids totally get it. They get what's going on for them. All of a sudden, I was making sense. And they love being being at, at the school. They love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. 
Um, but the adults, some of them, you can tell, like um, even the people we hire, I have to be super careful because so many of them are so trained. Because normally when you have a school, you're forced to hire so-called people who come from an education background. But all of them come with a certain mold in mind. And that's why right now, um, you know, we have to be super careful how we operate because not everybody's trained for this. And people still think it's okay to hit a child. And we're like, absolutely not. Scream at them. We're like, absolutely not. Yell, whatever. No, 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 no. And uh, most importantly, we never make a child feel, you know, unsafe. And unsafe, not just physically, but like maybe you're, you know, like, you know, like how you ask a question can be, you have to be very careful. So even I, sometimes I know that um, if I had a rough day or whatever, because I'm, I'm giving a class myself every week. And I know that if I didn't have a good, you know, if something is off with me, I prefer not to be exposed to the kids because kids feel everything. They feel everything literally. So, so I think we also, even ourselves check ourselves a lot from that standpoint. Uh, so me now I'm very good at being like, I'm not going to be able to do it because I just had this very rough whatever meeting or whatever it is. It's better for the kids to be told that uh, I'm traveling or whatever. Then you could argue that, of course, my God, you should be changing your mindset. Go to this classroom, put it aside. And I would I would do that when I know, when I can. But when I know I can't, when I know if something just happened, it's too, still too raw, I am definitely not taking that, that um, energy to the kids. And so I think, uh, and as long as you do that, you know, kids then learn to just be, you know, comfortable. And if they're comfortable, then we also being, believe that values are better created that way because they learn, they don't, they don't have to lie. They don't have to be worried about, they just can tell you the truth and we can take it from there. And that's what we, I tell them all the time. I tell them kids, you know, guys, no matter what happens, there's nothing in this world that cannot be solved except for, you know, if somebody dies, but, but there's nothing that we, you know, I don't even bring that up, but I'm like, nothing in this world, but we cannot solve. Right? I'm sure someday we're going to tell me you lied because maybe I don't know somebody's sick or whatever. I don't know. But it is true, though. There is always a solution. Always. Uh, there's always a solution, even if we don't know what it is or we don't end up finding it. But there's always one. And we have to start with step one, which is try to find it. So anyway, so that's pretty much um, what we're doing over there. It's a radically different from what people are used to. But we think we have something really good going. And now we're at the stage where we're going to scale this project. Uh, right now, my home literally is the school. I ran out of space. We Only my bed is, my, is, is what I own in this house. Everything else has been taken over. by, uh, And now we actually have now a little nursery. Like the first baby is there. So, yeah, but we think we've got something really great. I'm very happy with the people that we have working with us. And so now the time is going to be ready to um, scale this thing up. And um, once we can get it to a good place in Senegal, we actually have another country in Africa that's ready. They actually, those guys want to do it maybe at the national level. So I think there is a really, when I say that I'm bullish on Africa, I am bullish on Africa. There's a bright future waiting for us. And it's a lot of it is going to have to do with these kids that we train, you know, one by one. Um, there's we see this type of stuff coming up more and more across the continent. And so for me, that's uh, that's a promise of it. And what I love about it is you have all of these kids who technically would have had known nothing else but what we're going to put them through in a good way. And that to me, is such a great promise. These kids that are three years old, if we do our jobs right and if we don't somehow fall off a bandwagon or disappear or no longer can take care of them, if we do our job right, 
you're going to have kids who have always had it right from the from who always had the best opportunity from the from the beginning. And for me, that's what I'm so excited about. To the point that we have a nursery with one baby in it right now. That one is even better because that one, I mean, he gets to be because he's a little boy. He gets yeah. to be fed. I mean, his mom. So another thing I'm doing is um, the way I organize the work structure is that I really wanted to design it for also women as they become also moms. And so that's why when, uh, so this, this woman, for example, she, she's the one who decided when she would be willing to come back uh, for, to work. And it's funny because she could have left uh, the workplace earlier, but then she would have had to come at a certain time. And she said, my God, I don't want to stay at home. I have a health pregnancy. I'm fine. I'm, I don't want to stay at home. Actually, things are, I'm, I, it's just not going to be good if I stay home because I'm going to be sleeping. All, it's not good. It's not going to be good for me, my health of a baby. And I say, fine, keep coming. But you have to promise me something, anything you feel, whatever, we just, we stop and you take care of yourself. She's like, yeah, yeah fine, fine. The good news is we don't do it. We don't touch anything, you know, bad for anybody. Anyway, so after that voice, she said, but after the baby was born, she had to come back, I think after two months uh, by law. And she said, but could I come only at uh, month four? Because I really don't feel like leaving my child behind at so little. And I'm like, you know, and then she's like, you don't have to pay me those two months, but can I please not be, can I please take that time off? And I'm like, not only are you going to take it, but on top of that, I'm going to pay you. And when, you know, when you're ready, you come back there. And that's what we did. And before she, before she was re ready to come back, we had created a little nursery with a crib, bought all the supplies and everything. And I give her permission to leave as often as she needs to go nurse her child, go rocket, you know, hang out, do what she needs to do, and come back to work. We're like five minutes away from um, one what, the school to the to the workplace, and of course, she's not abusing any of it. It's all working out, and that's what I'm saying. So, you see, us in Africa, we have a chance to leapfrog all of us. And later, yeah. my goal is by the time the kids are small, my goal is soon. We want to retrofit everything at. Um, at the workplace so that uh, if the moms decide to, they can bring the child with them to work and the child, maybe they have little desks and we can decide mm -hmm. where the desks are. Maybe the desk is like by mom's area or whatever, but the kids are also going to be busy doing their own thing. So for me, there is a whole, there's an opportunity for a completely new play here. And uh, we're just, uh, you know, we're creating something where there was nothing before. Why right. not start with, why not start with the best leapfrog completely and start from there, you know? Absolutely. So before we wrap up, I would love to have you, for people who have enjoyed this interview, I'd love to have you share where else people can find your work. You've mentioned the book a couple of times. I know that you're doing some things with a school as well that people can connect with if they feel so inclined. Where would you send people next or what are you working on that you'd like to share? Yeah, no, definitely the book for anybody who um, can, you know, want to have it. It's called The Heart of a Cheetah. It's available on um, Amazon and everywhere you can buy books online. Um, also you can go on tiosanacademy.org. I will, I'm sure, um, Hannah, you'll share that tiosan, yes. T-I-O-S-S-A-N academy.org. So you get to have a little bit more information there and, um, there also you can donate to the school. And the other thing is on social media, you can follow me at magatw, M-A-G-A-T-T-E-W. And also my website, magatwade.com. And anyone who has some ideas or is interested uh, in any aspect of this, um, also please reach out. We definitely love um, the concept of the 101 uh, language acquisition skills. So some of the older kids, we like to be able to pair them with obviously uh, people we have vetted who can spend uh, you know, a few hours 
or one hour a week or a couple hours a week, whichever time you have, one-on-one with the kids, you know, to kind of do that um, um, English immersion skill set. Also, if people are French speakers as well, that's very helpful. But other than that, uh, soon, soon, I think sometimes next uh, in January, we're going to start having a specific newsletter about our efforts, um, specifically education related in, uh, in, in Senegal. So if you want us, if you want to have access to that as well, go ahead and make sure that you send me you send an email or when you go to my uh, website, there is a way for you to sign up and just somewhere where you can put the comment, just say all you can say, especially school or something like that, telling us that basically that's what you want us to earmark you so that we can send you those communications. But I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there. And you know, Hannah, my dream is someday, you know, right now we think of Africa and helping with education in Africa, the way we've been thinking about it, you know, we're happy because we built these few, these mud schools. And like I said, the kids are repeating mindlessly after a teacher. We, when we've done that, we're like, oh, we've all done a great job. And it's, and it's, 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 it's good work. It's good work in place of nothing. Right. But I'm, my goal here is to inspire everybody to think beyond that, because if we truly want to support these kids in terms of them becoming really uh, operational and able to face off with the 21st century, we're going to have to do way more than that. And it's it, and it doesn't take that much. It really doesn't take that much because when you're working with what you have, that's actually the best where the best education lies in, right? And so I really would like to inspire people to kind of um, to kind of reconsider, reconsider what is it that they're thinking about when they think about you know supporting education in Africa, right? And it's not just about this ed tech, like putting more kids in front of a uh, tablet. Or right. because people think it's a, the solution, even here in the U.S., they think. But education done right is highly, it's high touch. There is, we, of course, there is something that the software can do, but there is also something absolutely that the human has to do, human to human. And so I really would love for people to think about it that way. And when they do, we're right there, you know, to to be to be the people to do it with. And uh, the last thing I wanted to share also with people is, um, one day that's the goal. One day, maybe not for your little, maybe not for your little guys, because I understand no mom is going to be like, oh, I'm sending my six-year-old or seven-year-old, you know, but as we build the high schools, as we build the middle school, maybe even, who knows, it's my dream to see American kids, Westerners actually send their kids abroad to Africa, not to come as helpers or anything like that. You know, we're going to go save Africa. Uh Uh-uh, you're coming because we have things that really will help your children thrive, especially at their age in life where, you know, middle school, teenage years, it's a mess. We, in our traditional societies, those of us who would have stayed in touch with it, and that's exactly what we're doing with our school, then this will be a haven for your child to come and be reconnected with what matters when it's all said and done, what truly matters and develop some of these, um, and also get to, get to get some of these values that you have been trying to teach them, get to put them into practice. And for these kids to be in an environment where the culture really supports that, you know, where they're not gonna be um, a discrepancy between what it is that you're trying to instill in them in terms of good things and what the society at large is, is, is putting in front of them. You know what I mean? So I think that type of exchange needs to happen. It needs to happen. Um, I am a firm believer that everybody has something to contribute. And definitely our children, our cultures have a lot to contribute 
to your children and to your cultures. Um, cultures do do best when they when they when they mix because when they mix, naturally, oftentimes the best comes out as well. So that's really the goal. Also, eventually, as we scale this up, I really believe that there's something there. There's a reason why uh, the parents of immigrant children here, once their kids are usually around middle school, teenage years for sure, they send them back home. They send them back home to continue their education because they say if they stay in America, my child is going to become a person that I do not want them to become. But I know also other American parents do not want them to become, but they just don't have a choice. So that that very thing that these um, immigrant parents are doing, the fact that they know when the kids are little, America might be a, a good place for them. But once they get to teenage years, the society here, there are some things that it doesn't support, even if you know it's good and you want it then they send their kids over there. So it's like getting the best of both places at different ages, right? So at mm -hmm. some point, it would be good that American parents also get to learn from all of that and uh, be able to send your kids in places where there's initiation rituals. Because when you turn 13, then, you know, this idea that now, oh, I'm going to be a teenager and do all of these crazy things. No, no, no. There are societies where actually when you turn 13, you're just starting to be an adult. This is, this is now the things are going to become serious. And the initiation is just a way to mark that moment, you know, boys, boys, girls, girls, whatever they're doing, and then just um, go do stuff. Um, there's so much richness, there's so much, and it's healthy and it's good. So what, at one point, that's what I would like to see happen, that we send our children to each other, um, depending on what it is that they need, because it takes a village to raise a child, and that village um, should be global, because it's all one species at the end of the day. and. Uh, Sometimes there's something you can't do, but we can do that for your children. And sometimes there are things we can't do, but maybe you can do that for our children. And uh, that's just so it makes the world go round. So let us let us work towards that. Um, yeah. So that's really what I wanted to share with people. I love that. That's beautiful. My God, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. And this was such a fun conversation to have. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you. You too, Hannah. All right. That's a wrap for this week. Thank you so much for being here. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please leave a five-star rating. Ratings are how this show gets discovered by other people and it helps me bring in better guests. And no matter where you're listening, please like and subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss a future episode. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for being here. I'll see you next week.